ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Jeff Bezos and his three crewmates are now headed to space. I want to thank every Amazon employee and every Amazon customer because you guys paid for all of this. Hello, I'm Jen Leake. This is Rear Vision. That was Amazon founder Jeff Bezos talking about his trip to the edge of space in a rocket built by one of his companies. Amazon, along with Apple, Facebook, Google and Microsoft, make up the big five tech companies. They've transformed our lives through innovation and are some of the most impactful corporations to ever come out of the United States. But after decades of unchecked growth, more questions are being asked about the impact of their market control. And regulators in the United States could be about to file a lawsuit against Amazon for violating antitrust laws. Who holds economic power and therefore power more broadly in our society? And because these large digital platforms operate worldwide, it's very significant to see how they might be constrained or not constrained in major jurisdictions like the EU and the US, where regulators have far more resources to take these platforms on. Businesses want monopolies. They're not in favor of competition. No competition would be great, But as little competition as possible is what they're striving for. That's the purpose of a monopoly, to eliminate competition. The heat on Amazon is being driven by a woman who made her name criticising the company, Lena Kahn, the chair of the Federal Trade Commission in the United States, an agency set up to help enforce antitrust laws. The trust in antitrust refers to a group of businesses that team up or form a monopoly to dictate pricing in a particular market. And that's what was happening when these laws were first created. So who is Lena Khan? Lena uh, is one of the most celebrated young law professors in the country. And she happened to have written one of the most read law review articles in history, which was an article about the, the antitrust problem posed by Amazon. I'm going to read a quote from her paper. It's as if Bezos charted the company's growth by first drawing a map of antitrust laws and then devising routes to smoothly bypass them. Amazon has marched toward monopoly by singing the tune of a contemporary antitrust. Ouch. Ever since Ronald Reagan came to office, it's really antitrust enforcement just took this uh, very free market, very conservative turn. And so as Lena Khan and as the Biden administration tries to go in another direction, They're fighting all of these headwinds and they're engaged in making a political argument and a legal argument and a cultural argument. Franklin Four is the author of World Without Mind, The Existential Threat of Big Tech. Lena Khan was appointed chair of the FTC by President Biden in 2021. 
One of the surprising things about the Biden administration is that it has struck an extremely aggressive stance on antitrust. Her hugely influential paper was called The Amazon Antitrust Paradox. It was published in 2017 when she was just a 29-year-old law student. Here she is speaking at the Aspen Ideas Festival several years before she became chair of the FTC. One of the big changes in antitrust over the last few decades has been that we've adopted what's known as this consumer welfare framework for assessing whether there is harm. The change Lena is referring to started in the 1970s. Antitrust regulation was beginning to be redefined to focus on consumer welfare. The idea that as long as prices are kept low and customers are happy, there's no need to look any further. Instead, what really matters is economic efficiency. So whereas in the past, um, when you were analysing, you know, whether a particular merger was anti-competitive, you would look at a whole set of structural factors. Nowadays, um, the primary focus is on the effects, which oftentimes ends up being um, consumer prices, output, kind of metrics that should be reducible to consumer effects. And Amazon was a really interesting example because consumers love Amazon. Um, I think it's like the first or second most beloved institution in America. And so it seemed like a really interesting example and a really interesting vehicle for exploring the story of antitrust and of how I thought this consumer welfare frame was really blind to a lot of harms and negative effects of extreme concentration and dominance that I thought antitrust should pay attention to. Amazon represents something very unique in the area of antitrust because the nature of American jurisprudence is that it has evolved over time to say that big companies are not problematic if they keep prices low. So so long as the consumer isn't made to sacrifice at the, when they hit the, the pay button, bigness is not generally regarded as a problem. And the Biden administration has begun to tilt towards an older tradition of antitrust. And in that older tradition, bigness is said to be almost an inherent problem for political reasons, because big companies tend to throw their weight around um, to manipulate government, to crowd out competitors, but also because the buying power that big companies have as it relates to its suppliers and to producers is inherently problematic. Because even if the consumer isn't made to pay higher prices, then the producers of goods, the producers of content are oftentimes to be the sacrificial lambs in that scenario. The first federal antitrust laws were signed in 1890, and they've been added to and refined over the decades. But throughout history, how these laws are enforced, or if they're enforced at all, has always depended on who's in power and the political climate of the day. It was the rapid industrialisation of the late 19th century that led to the first antitrust regulations, an era when only a handful of men dominated American finance and industry, iconic business titans like J.D. Rockefeller and J.P. Morgan. From the middle of the 19th century to the end of the 19th century, American business radically changed from small locally based companies that made goods for a very small market into nationally powerful manufacturing industries that increasingly began to band together 
to reduce competition. So we had, by the end of the 1800s, we had essentially two steel companies that controlled the entire steel industry. We had a few coal companies. We had one huge sugar industry. If you wanted sugar, you you could buy their sugar or you didn't get sugar. There was a, a oil trust, Standard Oil. Diana B. Hendricks is a financial journalist and author. Standard Oil became the poster child, if you will, of this radical and fairly rapid change in the way the American economy worked. Before the Civil War, there'd been lots of little oil companies. Somebody dug for oil in Western Pennsylvania, boom, you had a little company. Someone dug for oil in the territory of Oklahoma, boom, you had another little company. But John D. Rockefeller, went around and through ruthless cost-cutting and and sometimes just illegal strong-arming methods, forced all those little companies to sell out to him. So ultimately, you had one big oil company, Standard Oil, which controlled virtually the market for oil in the United States. Business was, was rapaciously buying up all its competitors, making it impossible to compete against the giants. And that was seen as ultimately unhealthy for the economy. And the Sherman Antitrust Act was enacted. Now, it was a flawed piece of legislation. There's no doubt about it. It was used with some success if there was a presidential will to do that. When President Theodore Roosevelt took office, he started to use that antitrust act to bust up these trusts. They call it the trust buster. Cartoons of the of the period showed him with this big club, you know, with nails sticking out of the end of it, going around whacking up on Standard Oil and whacking up on the Sugar Trust and the Steel Trust. So he saw these trusts as detrimental to consumer interests and to the health of the overall economy. And so there was a, a surge in antitrust enforcement driven by the personality of that particular president. The Sherman Antitrust Act set up the early framework. Other initiatives followed to help strengthen the laws, along with the Federal Trade Commission, which was set up in 1914. With the election of the Republican Warren Harding in 1920, antitrust enforcement just basically disappeared from the face of the earth in the United States. Um, Business ran the show. Uh, from 1920 until the election of uh, Franklin Roosevelt in 1932, uh, Washington was controlled by big business. Nothing happened that big business didn't approve of. Um, nothing happened that would that would upset big business, and and that was the dominant theme of that decade. These huge monopoly corporations were able to use their stranglehold on labor to defy labor unions. One of the most egregious examples involved not just blacklisting employees, which was a common practice, but Bethlehem Steel even decided to blacklist its customers. It refused to sell its steel to any New York City builder who relied only on union labor. So as a way to force builders to to not use union labor, They wouldn't sell you steel to build your building. During the Great Depression, another President Roosevelt, this time FDR, revived antitrust enforcement. The the Roosevelt reforms in the New Deal show us that we can regulate wisely and produce a stronger economy um, that serves the public 
uh, as well as the plutocrats. That kind of mentality that a well-regulated business will be more trustworthy, will be better for its employees, for the community, for its consumers, has kind of forgotten along the way. We see it as a zero-sum game. Either, you know, regulate me and have a sluggish, awful, dreadful economy, or don't regulate me and have a wonderful, vibrant, you know, growing economy. That's a false choice. The years after World War II and into the 1960s saw another shift in attitudes. It's often referred to as the progressive era. It was a period of robust antitrust enforcement, and potential mergers were generally viewed with suspicion. I think it's fair to say that up through the 1960s, there was a general consensus that government should have an antitrust policy. It should oppose uh, the evolution of monopolies. It should act as some restraint on anti-competitive corrupt practices by business that closed the market to competitors. There was a general consensus that this was a worthy goal of government to do that. But then when you get into the 60s and early 70s, you start to see a philosophical shift driven by changes in economic thought. It's sometimes called the Chicago School, but it was a body of economic thought that was more focused on free enterprise, highly skeptical of government regulation, and in my mind, extremely naive and romantic about what unregulated business would get up to while your back was turned. But they began to hold sway in larger and larger uh, uh, communities of economic policy and then in larger communities of political power. The conservative backlash argued that big mergers could provide better efficiency for the economy. And as long as consumers were left better off, there's no problem. And in the aftermath of that, the idea of blocking a merger well, why would you block a merger? If, it, if consumers are happy, you know, who cares? So the welfare of consumers, are consumers okay, became the driving concern. The problem with that, of course, is consumers may be okay initially. Everything may be fine. The price of monopoly, the price workers pay for a monopoly, can take a long time to fall due. This more streamlined approach to antitrust laws really took off under Ronald Reagan, and it's pretty much been the dominant view ever since. This is Rear Vision. I'm Jen Leake. Now they're coming here to try and send us all broke. As a corporate citizen, they're terrible because it's sent a lot of other retailers broke, it used to employ people, they used to pay taxes. Amazon pays virtually no taxes. That was Jerry Harvey, owner of Harvey Norman, ahead of Amazon's arrival in Australia six years ago. We're a small market for Amazon, but it's a global company. So if it's forced to change aspects of how it operates in the United States, that will eventually filter through to Australia. Dr Catherine Kemp is an Associate Professor of Law at UNSW. 
they have a power across lots of different kinds of markets. And a lot of Australian consumers would probably not be aware of the fact that they have businesses in so many different kinds of markets and that they are able to, for example, feed consumer data between those markets. They will say in their privacy policies, for example, that they can share consumers' data across all of their different businesses, and there are around 50 of them. So they are far more than just the online retailer that we might know in our personal dealings with them. Amazon offers incredible convenience. It's a portal to an endless amount of products that are competitive on price and arrive on time. But, and this is central to Lena Khan's argument, the fact consumers love Amazon can obscure how they might be using their market control in unfair ways. Sometimes, while a monopoly is forming, it seems very attractive to us. It might be offering us particularly low prices or terms that just seem irresistible. And sometimes that can be because a firm is engaging in predatory pricing. It's actually pricing below its own cost to drive other competitors out of the market so that it can ultimately enjoy monopoly power. I'm not saying that Amazon Australia is engaging in predatory pricing, but this is how monopolization works and why something that doesn't actually seem like a bad thing in the short term can ultimately disadvantage consumers in the longer term. Amazon also has power over other businesses that depend on its platform for access to customers. There's been this acknowledgement that for a lot of vendors, that you know, people who want to sell online, they don't have a choice or don't have too much choice about whether or not they use Amazon. And this is why regulators have referred to Amazon as a gatekeeper, that essentially, you know, if you want to sell your products online, you're going to have to deal with Amazon. And so that gives them this very significant strategic power. And then that's complicated by the fact that Amazon itself is also selling its own products on that platform in that same marketplace. Some of the concerns that are very clear are these conflicts of interest, where Amazon is a marketplace, so they provide a platform for third-party sellers to reach customers. And they've done that incredibly successfully. Most authors have the majority of their sales on Amazon and, you know, many third-party sellers wouldn't really exist without a, a marketplace like Amazon. Krista Brown is from the American Economic Liberties Project. But the problem here is that Amazon also has its own products that it then sells on the same platform. And they've been found to kind of violate their own internal policies and use that, that data that they collect from these third-party sellers to mimic products, and then obviously they can prioritize themselves and not pay fulfillment fees or advertisement fees, and they can give themselves or their own products these prime badges that will almost guarantee them better sales. So it's really harmful when you have the same company playing on both sides, where they're a service but also a direct competitor. There are a couple problems with Amazon as a company. A, it's not entirely the consumer 
paradise that it seems like. So yes, it is possible to purchase anything at a cheap price, but you're not necessarily guaranteed quality. So you see this in book publishing, for instance, where there's so many counterfeit books that are traded on Amazon and Amazon essentially uh, wipes its hands of any sort of enforcing of authenticity and quality as it relates to its various marketplaces. So that's that's one problem, that there is this gray market that flourishes in their ecosystem. And it's not just quality control in books. Amazon has been unable to stop a whole range of counterfeit or illegitimate products being sold alongside the real deal. It's often referred to as the grey market. A lot of the expansion of big tech and the sort of leniency and sort of letting them go unchecked kind of happened a a fair bit under Obama. Obviously, he's first term off the back of the financial crisis, so he's wanting everything to get fired up. I think it's not just Obama. If you go back to the Clinton, Bill Clinton administration, you'll see that there was um, Democratic Party uh, started to change its economics, that it began to believe that efficiency, a smaller government footprint, less regulation was the way that you achieved growth. And so in the Clinton administration, you had the deregulation of the banking industry. And that policy was continued essentially in the Obama administration, where there wasn't a whole lot of antitrust enforcement. It wasn't that deregulation was accelerated under Obama, but he essentially held the line and kept the Clinton era economics in place. In 2012, Facebook bought Instagram, and a few years later, they bought WhatsApp. And at the time, the company was only five years old with a few dozen employees. Now to a blockbuster tech deal, Facebook is expanding its empire. What a deal this is. Facebook is buying WhatsApp for $19 billion, its largest acquisition ever. Breaking news, Facebook pays a jaw-dropping $19 billion for an app. An app. My name is Stephen Calkins. I am a professor at the Wayne State University Law School in Detroit and a former general counsel of the U.S. Federal Trade Commission. The mistake, if you want to criticize, is that maybe the enforcers should have brought challenges that they failed to bring. Perhaps most prominent example would be uh, that during uh, the Obama administration, the Federal Trade Commission failed to challenge Facebook when it uh, bought WhatsApp and failed to challenge WhatsApp when it bought Instagram. With hindsight, those look like very uh, ill-advised decisions. The tricky thing is that, of course, the, the enforcers didn't have hindsight. They had to look at the facts at the time. And I would guess that at the time, Instagram and WhatsApp were very small firms with probably almost no revenues. And so since there were smart people involved, that there were meaningful arguments against challenging them. On the other hand, uh, now that we have 2020 hindsight, lots of people are saying, gosh, maybe the enforcers were too uh, unwilling to challenge some mergers like that one. Microsoft has said that a lot has changed here, that the marketplace has changed, and therefore all of their conduct is of no significance. The central fact remains that in the operating system market and the applications market where Microsoft has a monopoly, 
their market share has increased consistently since the day this trial began. They are currently over 95% market share in both of those markets. Their profit margin for Windows alone is an astounding 78%. By every measure, they are a monopolist. By every measure, they have violated the Sherman Act. The most famous antitrust case involving a tech company was over 20 years ago, when Microsoft was accused of illegally protecting its operating system monopoly through Windows and seeking a new monopoly for its own browser, Internet Explorer, crushing competition like Netscape. The most important antitrust case in modern history is the case that actually the Clinton administration brought against Microsoft for its anti-competitive behavior in the late 1990s. And the Justice Department ended up settling that case with Microsoft in the George W. Bush administration. But what was so interesting about that case and so important, and I think instructive for the cases that we're talking about here, is that even though the Justice Department didn't win in court, what it did was fundamentally reform Microsoft's behavior. So Microsoft had been a very aggressive, very bullying company in the 1990s that didn't believe that the rules applied to it. And so when the government made it invest all this time and all this money and brought it to the brink of breakup, Microsoft then matured and became a bit of a better corporate actor. And there was this period where Microsoft wasn't acquiring every startup it could. And that was the period in which Google was born. And so, you know, that antitrust enforcement allowed for the next thing to come around. And I think what's happening now may or may not prevail in court, but it does help create space for the next competitor to arrive. The Microsoft example offers some clues about what might happen with Amazon. For starters, don't expect this to be resolved anytime soon. The Microsoft trial lasted five years. And Lena Khan is really pushing for a complete overhaul of how antitrust laws are enforced. And that's a big ask. If she does take on Amazon, for example, she will be walking into the lion's den, essentially. There is a great deal of lobbying that happens and political interests on both sides of politics in the US, which will be against her and her allies at the FTC. So it's it's no small feat. The tech companies that we all interact with in our daily lives have achieved remarkable dominance while delivering some awesome innovation. But perhaps we're at the beginning of a new era where their influence, power and market control is more closely scrutinised. She may not prevail in the short term, but she's she's pushing forward for, I think, really one of the most significant long-term political victories in uh, um, American capitalism. One of the paradoxes of the Amazon case is that the very technology that was supposed to dramatically lower the barriers to entry in the retail market. Everyone can afford a website. So anybody can get into the game and become a retailer. So the technology of, of the internet that was supposed to you know, eliminate the barriers of having to build bricks and mortar stores, get the building permits, hire the construction workers, hire all the employees, 
all that expensive stuff before you could sell a single widget. That's gone. And at the same time, we've seen the internet facilitate the growth of behemoths that on a scale that we've never seen before in the American economy, whether it's Google or Meta or Amazon. We're looking at leviathans bigger than anything that we've ever contemplated before. Diana B. Hendricks is a financial journalist. Her new book is called Taming the Street, The Old Guard, The New Deal and FDR's Fight to Regulate American Capitalism. Franklin Four is a staff writer at The Atlantic and author of World Without End, The Existential Threat of Big Tech. Also in the program, Associate Professor of Law at UNSW, Catherine Kemp. Krista Browns is from the American Economic Liberties Project and Stephen Calkins is a former general counsel to the Federal Trade Commission and Professor of Law at Wayne State University. This week's Rear Vision was produced by me, Jen Leake, and sound engineer Anne-Marie de Betancourt for ABC RN. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.